0: under the sun. And so he begins this section out the same way he's begun many of the sections throughout this sermon that he's preaching to the congregation, the assembly of Israel. And the vanity that he has seen, this great uh, evil that he has seen under the sun is this idea that no matter how hard you work or how much you sow, someone else is going to reap those things. Someone else is going to inherit those things regardless of whether they worked for it or earned it, or did anything to do the things that you did to get those things. Someone is going to come in your place and get those things. You know, this is a theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe. This might be the fourth or fifth or sixth time he's talked about work being vanity because no matter how hard you work or what you acquire in this life, someone else is going to reap those benefits. Someone else is going to get to enjoy those blessings that you've attained kind of makes you wonder if he was thinking about himself. And the things that he had gained throughout his life, the great riches, the great glory that he had attained throughout his kingship. You know, some, might, some, some have said that Solomon is the richest person who has ever lived. Looking at the things that he had and the wealth that was in Israel at the time and the status that he had among the world... Solomon was one of the richest people who has ever lived. And like we have said over and over again, this is a sermon from an old preacher who understands what's coming for him. And like he said in chapter 5, he he can't return, he can't take it with him. Verse 15, he talks about this man who has all, in chapter 5, he talks about this man who has all the riches in the world has attained all the glory in the world, all the wealth, all the goods. In verse 15 he says he's going to have to go naked to his mother's womb just the same way he came out. Solomon is is, is saying the same thing about himself. Over and over again throughout the study of Ecclesiastes, we've seen Solomon coming to this realization and telling this assembly of Israel, listen, there's going to be a day where all this stuff you've been worried about and focused on, and had those goggles on under the sun, there's going to be a day where all of it doesn't mean near as much or anything to you anymore because you cannot take it with you. That's what I, th- I believe he has found out about his life, and we've discussed kind of this thing throughout our study. I believe this section is obviously directly tied to what had just happened in chapter, fi- in chapter 5. In verse 18, he says, Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. And he talks about how good it is to enjoy the fruit of your work, the labor. And so last week, one of the only times throughout our study, we've left with an uh, almost positive message, you know, an uplifting message from this preacher, this uh, Solomon just for him to turn it around in the very next verses and talk about how even that is vanity. You know, we can enjoy the fruit of our toil and our labor, but we're going to have to realize that even through that enjoyment, there's going to come a day where we cannot enjoy it anymore. Someone else is going to enjoy it. Someone else is going to take it. And he says, A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and it is an evil affliction. And so I believe that's what he's doing in these two passages at the end of chapter 5 and beginning of chapter 6. He's trying to say, yeah, you need to enjoy the fruit of your labor, but understand that someone is going to enjoy that after you're gone. And I believe there has to be a tie to what he was experiencing in his own life. The realization that very soon he was not going to have those wealth and those possessions that he had attained and accrued over his life. And isn't there an obvious relation to our lives? We talked about it last week, some of our possessions that we hold at the most high place in our life. One day. It's going to be someone else's. One man's treasure is another man's trash. You know, you, you, you treasure this stuff your whole life. You, go, you have a little shed out in the back. And you, you, you as men, you keep all this, these tools that were your grandfather's tools and his grandfather's before him. And you've just cherished those items your whole life. And then what happens when it's time to downsize? You, you, you get a dumpster brought in and you throw it in the dumpster. We've all been there. We've all done this. And I believe that's exactly what we have to understand with our labor and our toil. Even the most great possessions in our life, if they're not thrown away by our kids, they're going to be burned by God when He comes again in the judgment. And so we have to understand that that's the vanity He's talking about. And I, I agree with Jay, when it comes to verse 3 and even verse 6, I believe Solomon is using hyperbole. You know, that's a big word. But that means he's using these big statements just to prove his point. He's saying these outlandish statements in our mind just to prove what he's trying to say. It's better to be a stillborn than to live life without God. Verse 6 It's better, e- e- even if you live a thousand years twice, no one can do that. Longest man to ever lived, Methuselah, 969, right? He's saying if you double Methuselah's life and you still cannot see the goodness of God, then what was it for? I think he's. Uh, also trying to let them understand what's about to happen to their nation. We've talked about this also in our study of Ecclesiastes, that very soon after Solomon's life, all their riches would be taken away. They'd be put into captivity. I think he's trying to let the congregation, this assembly of Israel, understand that they should expect no less when it comes to life under the sun you shouldn't expect to be able to hold on to all these riches and all these goods and all these things that you have attained. If you live an ungrateful life, I believe he's saying, it's no different than a man who hasn't realized what he's been given. What good is all the riches and all the wealth and all the things that you've gained over your life if you're not grateful for it? Verse 3, it's better to be a stillborn, than to be like this. Verse 6, it's better to have not lived one year than to have lived 2,000 years if you're not grateful for the years that you've been given. So I think he's trying to open their eyes and realize, listen, what you have isn't really yours, first of all. And second of all, what you have, you need to be grateful for. You need to find contentment in. You need to find gratitude in it. Because if you don't, then what was it for? Why were you given the riches? Why were you given the goodness? Why were you given the wealth if you're not going to be grateful for it? This is vanity under the sun, and it is a great evil. Even if you have this prolonged life that, you know, no one could ever live that long, what was it for if you could not see the goodness? that God was giving it to you. I think this is just as prevalent to us in the assembly of the church of Christ as it was the assembly of Israel back when he originally wrote this. You know, this is a, this is a time of, of year where it's about getting presents, right? It's about getting that new whatever the case might be. But I think we have to realize it's, Jesus was the one who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Why? Because you can see the goodness and the gratitude in that person's face. And we have to be a people that are grateful. If not, then why did he give us the riches, the goodness, and the things he did give us in the first place? I think that's what he's saying. He's not saying it's, it's vain to have riches. I think he's saying it's vain to have riches and not be grateful for it. And I think he is making a great statement for us, and he, he made, obviously made a great statement for his original audience.
1: I like what you're saying about gratitude, and I think the other aspect of, of what Solomon tries to communicate here is that we shouldn't, not just that we live with gratitude, but we should live with joy. Did you notice that language in verse two? Um, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. And I do believe Solomon might be thinking on his own life some, because as you were referring to, right here, wealth, possessions, and honor. Go back to Second uh, Chronicles chapter one, verse eleven and twelve, and you'll find out that those are the three things that God blessed him with—Solomon with himself—with when he gave Solomon the option to ask for anything he wanted. And he chose, he chose to ask for wisdom. And God said, because you've, asked of, because you've requested this, I'm also going to give you wealth and possessions and honor. So there may be some corollary there. But notice here in, in verse 2, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. Now, on a little aside here, that sounds kind of evil of God. God's not giving him the opportunity to enjoy here. But we need to understand something about Hebrew language and Hebrew thought for just a moment. Oftentimes, in Hebrew thought, they will attribute an action to God that that you and I wouldn't put that you and I wouldn't attribute to him. Let me re- rephrase that this way as I pull up these notes real quick. Where did it go? Um, so you think about Pharaoh. His heart was hardened by God. Or you think about King Saul. God sent a, uh, 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 an evil spirit onto him. And, and we hear those things, and for us that seems so wrong that God would do such things. But in Hebrew thought, active verbs were used by the Hebrews to express not so much the doing of a thing, but the permission of a thing. So when Pharaoh says Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, it's not that necessarily that God is actively causing Pharaoh's heart to be hardened, but he's allowing Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. And it's not necessarily that God sent this evil spirit into Saul, but that he allowed the evil spirit to be sent to Saul. To help you really understand what I'm talking about, just think about Job. Everything was taken, by, taken from Job's life. Who allowed that to happen? God. He gave permission for that to happen. And so in Hebrew thought, a lot of times you're going to come across terminology that attributes a negative or even evil action to God, when in all actuality it's just speaking about the permission of something happening. And maybe here what Solomon is saying is, is that that God allowed this scenario, maybe even in Solomon's own life, where he's blessed with everything he could ever want, but God didn't give permission for him to have the opportunity to enjoy it. I think joy is an important trait here. I think oftentimes we forget that God intends for us to enjoy life. He intends for us to find joy. Joy in a life lived with Him at its core. So you go to the Book of Philippians and you receive commands there about rejoice always. That, that's that's a command, not a suggestion, not a not a uh, option. It's expected. God intends for us to be joy filled. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, and I think one of our our failures is we we look at the fruits of the spirit and say okay i'm going to take my pick of the ones i want to develop when in reality the expectation is you're going to grow every fruit not just the ones you want and so joy as a fruit of the spirit is is an expectation that you're going to have possess create develop grow joy in your life and when we look here at what solomon sees as a great evil. I think he not only sees it to be a great evil to to not have gratitude for what God has given, because he's obviously recognizing God as the giver of all good gifts here. But I think Solomon also sees it to be an evil that you're not enjoying what God has given you. Because he expects you to, because God expects you to have joy in this life. He doesn't necessarily expect you to have happiness, because as I've mentioned a few times before, happiness... Is conditioned by circumstance, but joy, joy is based on on uh, the the uh, life lived in the confines of God's will. You can have joy in all things when your life is lived for God. So I, I do think there's also an element here as he uh, talks about God giving wealth, possessions, and honor, but not giving power to enjoy. I think that's a a, a message for us to realize that what God gives us is supposed to be enjoyed by us.
2: Uh, I agree that um, we can can get a message about, you know, how how we have to deal with the possessions and wealth and honor in this world and also how we have to be able to, uh, you know, thank God about those things and also how we have to enjoy, I mean... uh, enjoy those things. But there is another uh, thing that we may have to um, focus on or get out of this con- I mean text. I think uh, what Solomon is uh, trying to get us at is for us to see the, I don't know exactly, uh, the term that I would like to use here, but maybe vulnerability or susceptibility of our life. Uh, I see that message from the contrast between the uh, the person who lives very long, you know, thousand years over, and the one who still born who was still born. But Solomon says that the person, the soul uh, who was born, you know, uh, miscarried was better, is better. Why? And we can uh, get a hint why uh, Solomon sees the, you know, stillborn baby is better than the uh, person who lives long in verse 5. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything yet he finds rest rather than he. Because of the rest, the stillborn baby is better than the person who is long more than 1,000 years. So what uh, Solomon Solomon is uh, trying to tell us is that we have to look at the value. We have to be able to uh, value the rest that God will give us, obviously, after the toil of this life. So the toil is not, toil of this life is not the best thing as we discussed before, I mean, in the previous uh, classes. But the toil is the, uh, the second best thing, maybe. I mean, as we are born and as we are living, we have to do our best. To please God and to do God's will. And eating and drinking and enjoying our lives. But the best thing is waiting for us. And it is the rest. He made, I mean he assigned the rest, the eternal rest for those who please God. So what is the wisdom and what is the folly here that Solomon is talking about? Uh, I think we can see it in uh, chapter two, verse twenty-six. For the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the uh, to one who pleases God. So this is the wisdom that we understand this. Principle God set upon human beings. This is the, that is the wisdom that we have to get for us to uh, have enjoyment of our lives. Even if we have to toil, we have to know that there is the eternal and perfect rest waiting for us. And I think this is Uh, That is another uh, message that we have to, I mean, we can get from this text, uh, from verses 1 through 6.
0: You know, we've talked a lot, I think it's verse 3, about this idea of a miscarried or a stillborn and how intense that language is. But I think we have to understand, and we've talked about also tonight about how there's obvious correlation to his life, Solomon's life. Then we have to understand that this is not something he wasn't accustomed to experiencing. You think back to uh, David and Bathsheba when they conceived that child out of wedlock and totally in sin and totally in uh, unholy manner. We know that there was a punishment for that. And that God said that they couldn't have that child. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see David pleading for that child's life and pleading that God would spare his life. So much so that uh, he laid on the ground all night. He would not eat, he sacked uh, sack cloth and ashes and all of that. But God took that son. And so when you think about Solomon talking about. This young child, it's better for him to have not been born than to have lived this life. Do you think there's some correlation with him thinking about his brother he never got to meet? Because as we know, you know Solomon came from Bathsheba. And how many times do you think Bathsheba and David told Solomon about his brother or his, or his uh, sibling that had passed? And so I don't think he's just being flippant here. I think he's being honest. And he's trying to think about his own life and realizing, you know, my sibling I never met is in the arms of God. And I'm sitting here experiencing all these vanities. I'm experiencing all of these evils. I'm experiencing this horrible life under the sun. And it might have just been better for me to be the sibling that didn't get to be here. And I, again, this is such intense language. I know that this is probably pricking some heart strings tonight of people who have experienced this. But I do believe we have to understand that it is better for us to be with God than to be on this earth. It is better for us to be in the arms of Jesus and in the arms of God than to experience all these vanities and all these evils that are under the sun. And I think Solomon is having an ultimate humility moment here in saying that kind of language and and this kind of thing. That all of his life, he was aspiring and working towards the wrong thing. And instead, he should have been inspiring to be in the arms of God. And I think that could be a great encouragement for us tonight as we move on to the next passage.
2: Oh, before we go on, uh, let me, I mean, I would like to mention one thing. Uh, the last sentence of verse 2, it is a grievous evil in uh, English Standard Version, but in uh, King James Version, it says it is an evil disease, disease. So the e- the word the Hebrew word translated into evil in ESV is actually means disease. So if we don't if we are not able to enjoy our lives and you know our what we have, what we receive from God, that is a disease. It's a, grievous disease. So I, I want to let you that.
1: Well, let's turn our attention to verse 7. We'll just go through verse 9 with this next piece of reading. Verse 7 through 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 7 is the second time in this chapter (coughs) that the author has mentioned not being satisfied. To me that stands out. Dissatisfaction is a spiritual problem. Probably one we don't talk about very much. But when you think about it, dissatisfaction manifests itself most often in, in complaining. And when you complaining is one of those sins that we don't always realize is a sin. But you go to Philippians chapter 2, and Paul says, do all things without complaining. You go to 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 10, where paul utilizes the israelites as an example of what not to do and his reference is to their habitual complaining they're out there wandering through the wilderness and time and time again they demonstrate their dissatisfaction with their state of affairs by complaining oh lord you've brought us to this place and and we don't have adequate water we're dissatisfied Give us water. Oh, Lord, you know, you've been good to us and given us this manna every day, but we need some meat. This manna is getting stale. We're kind of tired of this. Can we change it up a little bit, Lord? They are the most dissatisfied group of people you will ever encounter. And then they stand on the edge of the promised land. They send out spies who come back and tell them how great that land is. And all they can say is, Oh, but there are giants in the land. They're too fortified. Oh, God, you've brought us out here to die. We are so dissatisfied. And what is that generation known for? Dying in a desert. All because they were never satisfied. They had a God who rescued them from slavery. They had a God who miraculously ended their captors. They had a God who escorted them across a desert land. They had a God who provided food and water and the daily provisions they needed every morning. They had a God who took care of their every move and even demonstrated his presence with a visible symbol day and night that whole time. And they were never satisfied with him. When I look here in in chapter 6, and I notice that Solomon makes reference to not being satisfied on two occasions, it really makes me look at myself and consider whether or not I've got a satisfaction problem, spiritually speaking. Am I satisfied with what God has done for me? Am I satisfied with what God is doing for me? Am I satisfied with what God will do for me? Am I satisfied with with all the blessings I've given? Because Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we've been given every spiritual blessing through God. I I think something Solomon does here in chapter 6 is he challenges us to consider whether or not we possess a content heart. And Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that satisfaction or contentment is something you can learn. You may not be born with it. It may not come inherently. It may not be something that, that you uh, automatically have as part of your genetic makeup, but it is something you can develop. It is something you can learn. And he'll go on to say to Timothy that godliness with contentment is a great gain. I think sometimes we forget the contentment part of that passage so all of us, every one of us should be in pursuit of satisfaction, of contentment because it is an expectation from God. Guys, what are your thoughts as we transition into this, these next few verses, 7 through
0: 9? I look at verse 7 and I'm thinking about how the labor of man is for the mouth and yet the soul is not satisfied. And yet again, we're talking about how even when, no matter how hard you work, it's vanity because it's you know going to somebody else and we've talked about that but when it comes to mowing the grass uh... is that not just the most just, just meaningless thing to do ever especially in the spring and summertime why? because two weeks from now it's going to be back you know I grew up on the farm and we had to mow, well, dad said go mow the yard that's 12 acres that's what that meant and there is satisfaction for mowing the yard isn't there you finish and you turn around and you're there, the, 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 the sidewalk is edged and uh, the, the driveway is blown off and the smell is in the air and the, the, the great look that your house has. I mean, it's like the Ponderosa after you mow the yard, right? I mean, it's just like the birds are tweeting, just, just singing. It's the greatest thing ever. But what's going to happen two weeks from now? Time to do it all over again. Time to sweat. Time to miss out on ball games. Time to do all the things you have to do while you mow. It's vanity. And uh, so some of us don't mow our yards half as much as we should because we know that it's just going to be back. And so when I'm thinking about this, I, I, I think about the same way when it comes to work. You know, when we work, we get to put food on the table. We get to, you know, if a man should not work, neither shall he eat. So we work, we go out, and we have a job, and we spend those hours, we spend that energy, we spend that time working, and sure enough, we're able to put food on the table. But you realize, even after you eat that meal, you've got to get up and do it again tomorrow. Because if you don't get up and do it again tomorrow, you won't have food on the table. And so even that, even that great sense of pride and great sense of accomplishment, at the end of the day is a continual process like mowing the grass. And so when I was thinking about this, we've been studying Ecclesiastes, it's been a little bit difficult to find New Testament application to this. You know, there's there's no quotations in the New Testament really from Ecclesiastes. There's no back and forth like some of the Old Testament uh, books that are around. Like songs or whatever. And so I was thinking about how there is this great New Testament application to this idea of never being satisfied with the food that we get from work, from putting food on the table and, and never having enough of it. And we see this idea in John chapter 4 with Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. And he says, you're going to have to drink again. In verse 13, Jesus answered said, and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. <clears throat> But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. And then fast forward to chapter 6 and verse 35. He says the same thing about food. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So when we think about this idea of how laboring under the sun is vanity, is is useless, is meaningless. Yes, we get to put food on the table, but if we don't continue that process, there won't be food on the table. The fridge will go empty. When we think about our spiritual life and our soul, Jesus offers water that makes us never thirst again. Jesus offers bread that makes us never hunger again. You see, this is this idea of under the sun versus above the sun. And when we think about life above the sun in Jesus Christ, we don't thirst spiritually. We don't hunger spiritually because he fills us up in a way that we never need to be filled or we never need to drink again. That's the greatness of living life in Jesus Christ. And so I think that's a great application for us as we look at this idea of work and we look at how this soul is not satisfied and especially as we go continue throughout the study of Ecclesiastes that you know this is the case under the sun. We should expect nothing less. But we can expect nothing but greatness when it comes to life in Jesus Christ because we shall never thirst and we'll never be hungry again.
3: One thing kind of building on that that I kind of thought of from the New Testament perspective, that um, drives home, at, I think what Solomon has been saying every single topic we've been getting to, all of this is vanity and this is what's important. And I think the first part of verse 9 is this under-the-sun mentality. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the first part of verse 9 shows this under-the-sun mentality that drives home at why he's not finding satisfaction. He writes, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. And going back to verse 7, why why he has found so much dissatisfaction in everything is he's feeding himself the wrong thing. His appetite has never gone away. Verse 7, he says that all man's labor is for his mouth, yet the appetite is never or not satisfied. The reason Solomon is not having his appetite satisfied is because he's feeding the wrong stomach here. I think about Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus is being tempted by Satan and he's been fasting for 40 days and he's, on the, he's at the verge of starvation and Satan, so, his, Satan's obvious first temptation is, is, well why don't you eat some food? Here, turn these rocks into bread. And he replies with that, that quotation of Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 when, where Moses writes, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Christ says, I'm not hungry. My soul doesn't need anything. I've got exactly what I need because my soul is full. And that's not worth giving up what my body wants. The reason Solomon is, is, keeps hitting this door over and over again because of this under the sun mentality is because he's feeding the body and not the soul. That's why the appetite is never going away. And we see that, we see this kind of mindset being kind of unveiled a little bit in verse 9 when he says what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. How messed up that is. If, if I were to stop eating right now, okay, if I didn't eat any food this week, and that would be a shame, right, because I think I'm have some good food lined up this week for me. But if I didn't eat this week, you, you maybe wouldn't notice much next week. Maybe I would be very lethargic, I'd be very tired up here. Maybe you could see my eyes, you know, like, man, Jay, Jay you okay? If I didn't eat for two weeks, may, yeah, maybe you'd start to notice some. If I didn't eat for a month, it would be the hospital if I was alive at all you don't eat physically, it's, it's go, it, you can maybe get by for a little while, but it's going to be noticeable to the point where you're going to pass away because of it. And we can look at someone saying, you know, this person has, you know, as a, uh, he's a problem with eating. He's not, he's not eating enough, or she's not eating enough, whatever it may be. We can witness that. The sad part is we can't do that sometimes spiritually. Because I could not be feeding my soul the very things that it needs, God's Word and relationship with Him. I could not be feeding that for months. And maybe you would never notice a difference. And maybe that's part of my fault, maybe that's part of your fault for not being in each other's lives enough, but that's not the case, that's not the point here. God sees our spiritual appetite. You may be ignoring it, and the people around you may not be able to witness it, but God knows your spiritual appetite just like He knows my spiritual appetite. We just, we just finished a three-month study on this in the youth group, having a good biblical diet. If you're having problem with dissatisfaction, if you're having problem with not finding contentment in your life, maybe because you're feeding the wrong stomach and your, soul's, your spiritual desire is there and you're denying it. So I wonder how many of us tonight, what we look like in the eyes of God, I, I, th- I talk about this with the youth group a lot, and, and Kyle, this goes back to your lesson this morning. A lot of times I try to see, okay, what do I look like right now? If I could step aside, how does God see Jay Hall in this context? When I look in a mirror, I see, my, I see the, the results of my physical diet. But when God looks at me, I wonder how I look to Him and the results of my spiritual diet. Am I well-fed? Am I, am I, am I, do, I ha- do I have the right intake as I should? And so I think that's, I mean, and Solomon recognizes this. This is not something that I think he's wholeheartedly in. This is his under the sun goggles on looking through. This is why people's appetite's not being filled, is because they see what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires.
2: Well, let me just quote uh, uh, from the Summer of the Mount what Jesus said about what we are talking about. It is in Matthew chapter 6, verse, verses 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So what we see as our value, what we see as our purpose of our life, determines our life. And that's what I think uh, uh, the Solomon is talking here, too.
1: Well, let's turn our attention to the last few verses of the chapter, verses 10 through uh, 12, whatever has come to be has already been, excuse me, has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Gentlemen, do you have uh, some quick comments about this section? I just have the
0: one, and it's very simple. It's it's interesting how he just begins this chapter with the under the sun evil that he has seen, and then he book, bookends it right at the end again with this thought of what can tell who can tell a man what will happen to him under the sun, and it's just a it's a tr- such a true bookend to this discussion he is engaging in. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to see how he, he does that in this chapter.
2: Uh, this section uh, reminds me of uh, verse, I mean, chapter 3, verse 15, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And the last sentence of this verse says, God seeks what has been driven away. And I pointed out when we studied this scripture that, uh, you know, it means God's judgment. God will seek and judge what is driven away from his law. And that reminds us of the eternal judgment and final judgment. And this language, the same language, not exactly the same, but the uh, similar language here uh, reminds me of the judgment. So how we enjoy our life, how we uh, have, I mean, how we view our life, how we uh, get our purpose of our life will determine, will be a very important factor of the judgment on the day.
3: I think at the end of every chapter, it's, it's just a sobering thought of what people have to go through if, if all, all they can do is look under the sun. If that's all they have, And, and time and time again, we end this series, or I, I end a chapter thinking how sad that, that life has to be if this is all they have. I mean, look at the, the results, look at the, the logic Solomon is coming to if he's using only an under the sun mentality, and this is what he keeps going to. And The first part of verse 12, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life. He will spin them like a shadow. You know, we're all walking away from 2020, uh, maybe a little dissatisfied, maybe a little disappointed, maybe, maybe made uncomfortable because of the things going on. But truly, thank God that that does not have to matter to a Christian as much that we don't have all of our investment, all the things that are truly important to us aren't wrapped up into what happened this year. And Regardless of how we feel, I think we can all say, no matter when it comes to the state of our government, government or the election, no matter what side of the coin you fall on, I think we all can say, yeah, I'm a little dissatisfied, uh, yeah, I'm a little um, disappointed here, but thank goodness that I don't have to live under the sun and this is all I have to put my faith in. Thank goodness 2020 doesn't have to to be the end all for me. That If 2021 is worse, which I don't... But if 2021 is worse, right? Knock on wood, yeah. That's okay. Because I'm not living for this life under the sun. That doesn't matter. I'm going to do the best I can with the little vapor of life that I've got. Because I'm living for something above the sun.
1: Amen. I do find it interesting that the chapter closes out with two rhetorical questions, both of which technically could be answered simply with the term God. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his life? God. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? God. And when we enter chapter 7, which we'll do in two weeks, we find out that once again Solomon is leading us to the conclusion that Living life above the sun, living God, life with God in the picture, is what it's all about. With that, let us draw our time tonight of study to a close, and if you will join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to dismiss. Our Heavenly Father, we are honored to gather tonight to worship you and to study your word. It is our prayer that this time has been pleasing in your sight. It is our prayer, Lord, that as we go our separate ways this evening, that you will be with us as we're entering a week in a time of, of, of uh, travel for some, of uh, time spent with family for some. Um, and Lord, we pray that, that we can enjoy the holiday season with, our, with those that we have the opportunity to spend time with. But Lord, we pray that above all else, we'll represent you well in the days to come that we will honor you with our lives and make you proud with the decisions that we make. Lord, help us to live above the sun and help us to keep you in the picture at all times. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray.